Heavenly Father, this morning, truly we do marvel at the cross. And as we marvel at the cross, even as we sang earlier, we proclaim, Hallelujah, what a Savior. What a Savior who would leave the glory of heaven to take on flesh and to die for me. What a God who in love would send his only begotten Son to die for me. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Heavenly Father, this morning is we have sung these songs as we have looked at these passages. We have contemplated the cross. And even now as we come to John 12, our minds will be drawn back to that cross. And Father, I pray that we would not become easily distracted or drawn away, but we would focus in on the cross of Jesus Christ that we would be moved to response by what God has done for us. As we see the cross that is looming over Jesus at this point in John, may we not just glance over it. May we be moved to tears, to response to a God who loves us so. We pray that you would be honored in this time and all that is said is done. We pray that you would give me boldness to proclaim the truth of the word of God with clarity, with authority. And may you be lifted up in this time. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. John 12, verses 20 to 36. Almost every state in the continental United States experiences to some degree all four seasons. But one of the benefits of living in Iowa is that we experience all four seasons very, extremely, very clearly. We experience the full force of, of summer and the full force of winter. How many times in the midst of a, a week like this last week, have you thought, man, I cannot wait for summer? But then we know ourselves, don't we? In the middle of June, we're going to say, man, I cannot wait for January. <laughs> it is hot. We get the full force of all four seasons. And with those extremes of summer and winter comes the beauty of a real spring and a real fall. Each season in Iowa brings its own challenges, and each season also brings its own unique beauty. If you were like me, you might have grown a little jealous last week as um, the Stillwells were up here explaining the weather in uh, Peru. Talked about how in the summer it gets up to, you know, the high to about 80, and in the winter it gets really cold down to about 60. And I was sitting there and I was thinking, man, maybe God's calling me to missions. 
And I brought that up at lunch, the, just the beautiful weather. And the first thing, both of them said this. They both said, yes, it's nice, but we love coming back to the States, visiting Iowa, and seeing all four seasons. It's one of those things that we take for granted, is it not? It's one of those simple blessings that we tend to overlook. A simple changing of the seasons. There's a unique beauty in the changing of seasons. Just think about it. In your, at your house, you get four different views throughout the year. It's constantly changing. From green leaves to trees bursting with color. From green grass to a blanket of pure white snow. From a dead flower bed to a beautiful, thriving garden. We get four distinct seasons. And with these four distinct seasons comes distinct clues that the seasons are changing. And those changes are beautiful in and of themselves. The changing colors of leaves signal the end of summer and the arrival of fall. Shorter days and the first snow of the year makes it clear that winter is coming. Flowers and other plants beginning to bloom. And longer days promise spring. And full trees and active wild, wildlife along with warming weather alert us to summer. There are clear signs that point to the coming change. They give us time to get ready. As we turn our attention this morning to John 12, 20-36, there is a sign like the changing of a season that makes it clear to Jesus that the cross is near. From the end of John 11 into John 12, there is a shift in the book of John and in Jesus' ministry. John 12 is a transition chapter. We are moving out of Jesus' public ministry and into these last private days before the cross. The cross is quickly approaching. In John 12, we find three occurrences that, that mark this change, that move us towards the cross. The first we saw two weeks ago, Jesus' triumphal entry. As he moves into Jer Jerusalem triumphantly, and we looked at, at what the crowd is expecting and what they are saying, and how they're saying the right words, but they mean the wrong thing. They're missing what is really going on. This week we'll see Gentiles who seek Jesus. And then next week, the Lord willing, the Jewish rejection of Jesus. And so as we come to our passage today, we find this group of Gentiles, these, these Greeks who inquire after Jesus. And it's these Greeks' interest in Jesus that stands out as a stark contrast to the Jewish religious leaders' hatred for Jesus. And so as the first snow of the year is a clear sign that winter is coming, so here in John 12, these Greeks who are coming to Jesus are a clear sign that Jesus' death is at hand. In the shadow of the looming cross, Jesus explains what must happen and why it must happen. And then he calls these people to repentance. 
So as we move out of Jesus' public ministry and toward the cross, the question is now becoming less, who is Jesus? John has made a very clear statement through the first 11 chapters. This is who Jesus is. Believe. Now time is getting short. And it's starting to move to what will you do? Will you believe in Jesus? Or will you reject him? Will you love the light? Or will you walk in the darkness? This morning as we move our way through this passage, we will see the sign the hour, the triumph, and the invitation. The sign, the hour, the triumph, and the invitation. John 12, 20 to 36. First thing we see, verses 20 to 23 is the sign. If you remember the first part of John chapter 12, Where we are, we're in Jerusalem. Jesus has had his triumphal entry. We're here, why? Because of the Passover feast. That's why we're here, for the Passover feast. So these first few verses set the scene for everything that Jesus is going to say in this passage. John 12, 20 informs us that among the crowds of people that are in Jerusalem for the Passover, there are some Greeks. There were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. The Greek language at this time was the lingua franca of the day. And so when it says Greek, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be from Greece itself. Rather, the idea, it's more of a general term for Gentiles from the Greek-speaking world. These are non-Jews. But knowing that then, the next part of this verse stands out as as pretty surprising. There were certain Greeks, non-Jews, Gentiles among those. And why did they come to Jerusalem? Did they come to just observe? Did they come to stir up trouble? Did they come for business? Why are they here? They came up to worship at the feast. They've come to worship. It seems to indicate that these Gentiles, these Greeks, are not just tourists. They are God-fearing men. They may even be proselytes, those who have already believed. It seems clear, based on the context, they've not yet submitted to circumcision and fully taken on the law, otherwise they would be called Jews. But they are God-fearing men. They are not just here to watch. They are not just here to observe. They have come to worship. So these God-fearing men, then they come to Philip, who is from Bethsaida of Galilee, and to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. Philip takes the request to Andrew, and together they go to Jesus. There's several details in here that we're not given. We're given what happened. There's several questions that pop up in my mind and probably pop up in in your mind. Why do these men go to Philip instead of Jesus? Why does Philip go to Andrew instead of going straight to Jesus? 
We don't know. We're not told. It could be that Philip has a Greek name, so perhaps they were more comfortable going to Philip. In fact, it tells us where Philip was from. He was from Bethsaida of Galilee, which is in the general area of the Decapolis, an area uh, where it's possible that these Greek-speaking Gentiles were from. So perhaps they recognized his name. Perhaps that drew them. Maybe they're thinking we have a better chance of getting to Jesus if we go to this man who is like us. In reality, that's all guessing. Because the passage doesn't tell us. It merely says what happened. And regardless of how it happens, the important thing here is that their message makes it to Jesus. That is John's point. Their message gets to Jesus. Philip came to Andrew, came to Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Again, this is interesting. In this passage, Jesus never actually directly addresses these Gentiles. He never goes to them personally. And we don't know whether they actually ever made it to Jesus or, or, or not. We know that their request made it to Jesus. And again, that is John's point here. It's not necessarily what Jesus says to these Greeks, or if he says anything to them at all, but merely the fact that they are seeking him. The fact that these Greek men are seeking Jesus stands in stark contrast to the religious leaders. This small band of Gentiles wish to see Jesus while the Jews wish to kill Jesus. They wish to hear Jesus out. Jews, if Jesus doesn't fulfill their expectations, want nothing to do with him. So the hour has come for the Son of Man to be Glorified. That is very interesting because up until this point in the book of John, that phrase, the hour, has been mentioned several times. In chapter 2, verse 4. In verse 4, verse 21. In 23, in chapter 7, verse 30. In chapter 8, verse 20. And in each one of those instances, it has been future. My hour has not yet come. It is not yet time, and yet here, as these Greeks come to Jesus, Jesus answers and says, the hour has come. It is here. These Greeks who are seeking Jesus serve as a very clear sign to Jesus that the hour is at hand. The hour As we'll see as this passage goes forward, as we've seen throughout the rest of the book, the hour refers to the time of Jesus' glorification. His death. His resurrection. His ascension. And from this point forward, these Greeks who seek Jesus, from this point forward, the hour in the book of John is imminent. It is here. It is at hand. Verses 20 to 23, Jesus goes on to explain this hour. See, in the setting of this passage, these Jews come to Jesus, the signal is the hour is at hand. 
Now Jesus goes on to explain what this hour is. Most assuredly, I say to you, verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. In verse 24, Jesus uses, the, Jesus uses the illustration of a seed to explain the necessity and the benefit of his looming death. It's an illustration from farming. We're in Iowa. We should get this. We see throughout the year, in the different seasons, we see that through the farmer fields all around us, do we not? We see as they put down seed, we see, it as the, we see as that seed blossoms and blooms, and we see as they harvest. In this passage, verse 24, the seed that is sown illustrates death. The seed goes into the ground, it dies. In fact, not only does the seed go into the ground, but as it sprouts, it ceases to be a simple seed. It changes completely. And out of that little seed's death, life springs forth. That little seed produces life that is so much more abundant than just one little seed. An abundant harvest. In like manner, Jesus here is talking about his death. Jesus' glorification is at hand, and like the seed that brings forth abundant life by its death, so Jesus must die so that he can rise to an abundant harvest. Salvation for whoever will believe. One death that produces abundant life. Jesus' death does not signal his defeat, but his victory. You see, the seed that is tossed into the ground, it's not wasted. The seed that is planted, it's not just thrown away. It is the seed that dies that accomplishes its purpose. That is the seed that fulfills its potential. And the death of Jesus Christ and the humiliation of the cross ultimately leads to the glorification of the Son and abundant life for all who will believe. Jesus must die so that many may live. As you move into verses 25 to 26, Jesus carries that same principle forward to his followers. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life will keep it for will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. There's a sense in which those who believe in Jesus die to the world and are raised to life in Christ. It's a principle we see all throughout the New Testament. And yet there's also a sense in which those who are in Christ might face physical death because of their faith. 
And we must be willing to follow Christ, even to death. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. The one who says that is on his way to the cross. I am going to lay down my life so that life can spring forth. And I'm going to call you to lay down your lives, to follow me. Jesus' language comes across here in verse 25, very harsh in English. Love versus hate. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life will keep it for eternal life. The ESV Study Bible helpfully phrases it this way. Loves his life means delights in his life, in this world more than in God. And hates his life in this world means, by contrast, thinks so little of his life and so much of God that he's willing to sacrifice it all for God. What Jesus is saying here is that to hate yourself, it's not to wish yourself harm, but it's to love God so much that in contrast, your value of yourself is hatred compared to your love for God. I love the library that the Lord has blessed me with. If you walk into my office, I have a fairly extensive library with very little personal investment. That library is a good thing and it serves me well and I use it often. And I would not in any way be exaggerating to say that I love the library that the Lord has given me. But I also love my family. And if it came down to it, I would gladly throw away, destroy, and burn my library. In fact, I would set it on fire myself in order to save my family. Because while I love my family, but love my library, I love my family infinitely more. And my love for my library in that moment as I am lighting it on fire would seem like hate in comparison to my love for my family. It's not that I don't love my library. It's not that I don't care for it as I have opportunity. It is that I love my family infinitely more to the point that my love for my library looks like hate. Likewise, Jesus calls his followers to this radical commitment. Let your love for me cause your love for self to look like hate. Not that you go out and you purposely cause yourself harm, but that you are willing to follow me wherever that takes and whatever that means for you. We must love God above everything else, even our own lives, because God is infinitely greater. Our love for self must be replaced by love for God. And this radical love is displayed in our willingness to follow Jesus wherever that may lead even to death.
But if anyone serves me, and he follows me, where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. To throw away your life is not to throw away everything. To throw away your life for Christ, the father will honor you. There is reward. There is life abundant. If you come to John 12, 27, Jesus once again changes focus. It shifts from Jesus' followers back onto himself. Before Jesus' followers can follow him, he must go through the cross. There's this looming reality that greatly troubles him. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. We do not see here a Jesus who is wavering. What we see is a Jesus who is fully God and fully man. Jesus stands at this moment as a sinless Savior on the brink of the full wrath of God for the sins of the world. So often when we look at the cross, we tend to focus on the physical pain of the cross, do we not? We focus on the thorns, on the nails, on the whip, on the blood. I would submit to you this morning that it is not the physical pain that most weighs on Jesus, but the reality of facing the wrath of God. Jesus' indication is not, Jesus' dread is not an indication of his weakness, but of the immense burden of the cross. It is the weight of standing before the full wrath of God. It is too much for any man to take. Only the God-man can face it and only the God-man can triumph through it. Is that what not Jesus goes on to say here in John 12? My soul is troubled. But what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. The hour is here and the hour is dreadful. But this hour is necessary. This hour is the whole reason that Jesus has come into the world. This is why the Word was made flesh. John 3.16, a verse we all know well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God did not give his Son to live, but to die a substitutionary death on the cross for the sins of the world and to rise again victorious. Whosoever believes can only have everlasting life if God's only begotten Son dies for their sins. That is exactly what Jesus has just said in John 12, 24. Everlasting life for all who believes springs forth from the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. 
If Christ does not bear the wrath of God in His death on the cross for sin, then we who are in Christ could never live in Christ. Jesus must die. He knows this. Look at his response. For this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This is very similar to uh, a scene we see later on. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That word back in verse 27, now my soul is troubled. That word troubled is intense anxiety. It is that same thing that Jesus wrestles with in the garden of Gethsemane. And what we see here is that fear and anxiety in and of themselves are not bad. Jesus faces real fear. Here he faces real anxiety to a level that you and I will never know. In fact, there are many situations when a healthy fear is valuable. Fear itself is not bad, but fear and anxiety without perspective are dangerous. To face fear and anxiety is human, but to give in to fear and anxiety is sinful. Jesus is greatly troubled at what lies before him. But he doesn't give in to that will, to that fear. He submits to the will of God. He keeps the right perspective throughout this entire scene. He does not submit to his anxiety. He submits to God and his will. Glorify your name. As we come to John 28, we come to a very surprising response. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. An audible answer from heaven. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. It's one of only three times in Jesus' ministry when there is an audible voice from heaven. The other two are at Jesus' baptism and his transfiguration. What we see here is a direct answer to Jesus' prayer. In fact, John Calvin notes that it, uh, that it is as if the Father has said, I will finish what I have begun. Jesus prays. Glorify your name. And the Father answers, I have glorified it. And I will continue to glorify it. I will complete what I have begun. I will not abandon you. He has glorified his name in the incarnation of Jesus and he will glorify it in the glorification of Jesus. In fact, notice also Jesus' prayer. He does not pray for the strength to glorify God's name, but that God would glorify his own name. 
See, God's glory is not dependent on you or on I. God is responsible for His own glory, and God will be glorified. We're coming out of Christmas. Well, we're pretty clearly out of Christmas season by now. Hopefully you have your tree down. Near the last day of January. But during Christmas, there's all these different Christmas movies on, and they, they all have a fairly consistent theme. Santa is dependent on Christmas spirit. It's kind of the, the plot of all the Christmas movies, right? There's not enough Christmas spirit, and Santa needs to get more Christmas spirit so he can keep being Santa. The more people that believe in Santa, the stronger his power. But the less people who believe in Santa, Santa's power or magic begins to slip away, and he's in danger of losing it all. Brothers and sisters, this morning God is never in danger of losing his power or his glory. God's glory is not dependent on your faith or my action. I cannot add to God's glory and I cannot take from God's glory. Jesus' prayer for God to glorify his name is a prayer of submission to God's will. Your name will be glorified. May I be a part of it. Accomplish your purpose in me. It is a submission to God. And what is perhaps most sad in this passage is what we see in verse 29. God speaks in an audible voice to the throng of people who are gathered here in Jerusalem and they misinterpret it. Some miss the significance of what has just happened altogether. They chalk it up to, to a natural phenomenon like thunder. Others recognize it was a voice, but they attribute it to the wrong source. They assume it was an angel. They don't understand what was said. They're so blinded that though God speaks audibly from heaven, they don't even understand it. And yet before we condemn them, we must recognize that we are no different. How many times have you or I longed for a clear sign or an audible voice from heaven? God, just tell me what to do clearly. Make it obvious. All the while ignoring God's living, powerful, clear word that is sitting in our laps. Again, Calvin states on this, it is the same thing is practiced every day. For God speaks plainly enough in the gospel, and which is also displayed the power and energy of the Spirit, which ought to shake the heaven and the earth. But many are as little affected by the doctrine as if it only proceeded from a mortal man. And others consider the word of God to be confused and barbarous as if it were nothing else than thunder. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God has spoken. He has given us his word, and it is clear, and it is powerful, and may we not overlook it or misunderstand it. Uh, 
By Jesus' death, he gives life to all who believe. And faith in Jesus is not a simple acknowledgement of what is true, but a surrender and submission to the truth. Faith follows Jesus wherever he may lead. And this radical commitment is displayed for us by Jesus' submission to and obedience of the Father as displayed at the cross. Jesus must die. The sign has come. The hour is at hand. And Christ will triumph. These Gentiles who have come to Jesus, they are the sign that the hour is here. The hour is the hour of Jesus' glorification, beginning with his death from which life will spring forth. But in these verses, verses 30 to 33, Jesus goes on to explain not just what the hour is, but what that hour will accomplish. Notice first what Jesus says. Jesus answers after this voice has spoken. This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. It seems like an odd thing to say, does it not? We just heard that Jesus is the only one who understood what was said. And then Jesus says, God didn't do that for me, but for you. But none of them understood. He's addressing this voice that they have heard, but they've misunderstood, misidentified. Now, this does not mean that there was no benefit for Jesus or encouragement for Jesus in what God said, but simply that the way it was said audibly for all to hear was for the benefit of the crowd. The crowd may not have understood what was said or rightly identified who spoke it, but they all heard it. They heard something. And even though they missed it, an audible voice from heaven responded to Jesus. And that would only further confirm who Jesus is. His authority. Again, D.A. Carson goes on to note that even though the crowd, and specifically the disciples, missed the immediate significance of what has just occurred, eventually they would remember what Jesus had told them that the voice had uttered, and it would be for them a divine confirmation that the shameful cross and all that flowed from it was not a defeat, but a victory. Not final destruction, but ultimate glorification. The cross is not a mishap. The cross is God's plan. That's what Jesus goes on to say here. The hour is at hand that brings judgment for the world and the, and the defeat of the ruler of the world. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. At the cross, this very same crowd will pass judgment on Jesus and they will condemn him to death and in so doing, they will bring judgment on themselves. The cross is the final culmination of a sinful people rejecting a sinless Savior. And by rejecting the Son sent by the Father, they are rejecting the Father Himself. 
So here at the cross, the holy wrath and justice of God collides with the perfect love and the grace of God on full display for all to see. Those who reject Jesus, rather physically condemning him to the cross, or today, who reject faith in Christ. will be condemned. will face the judgment of God. But those who accept Jesus find grace and everlasting life. Notice that the cross brings not just judgment, but look at the next phrase. And now the ruler of the world will be cast out. Clearly it is Satan and his rule that is in view. And what would seem to be Satan's victory... As the world rejects Jesus, as they kill Jesus, is in fact Satan's defeat. The vicarious death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead snatches all power from Satan's hand. Satan's power to stand up and to accuse the brethren has been nullified by the blood of the Lamb. He will be cast down. He has no more power. So the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ both solidifies judgment for all who reject Jesus. And it solidifies victory over sin and death for Jesus and all who are in him. And what Jesus accomplishes in his first coming, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension... We finalized in his second coming. Satan has no power. He has been cast down and he will be literally cast into the lake of fire. Those who reject Jesus will face the judgment of God and Satan will be cast out. And I, verse 32, if I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself. Christ will be lifted up on the cross and he will be lifted up to glory. And he will draw all men to himself. That all men there is not imply universal salvation. It returns to the context of this whole passage. Gentiles who have come to Jesus, who are seeking Jesus. The idea here is all kinds of men. Jew and Gentile alike. Black and white, rich and poor. This phrase, all kinds of men, draws our attention to the heavenly throng of Revelation 7, where a great multitude which no one can number of all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues stands before the throne of the Lamb, praising Him for the salvation that is His. And a passage like this stirs our hearts and it draws the cry from our lips and our hearts. Even so, come Lord Jesus, does it not? A passage like this must not just draw our longing for the future, but a faithfulness for the present. We are victorious because Christ is victorious. Satan has been defeated and he has no power over you or over me if I am in Christ. Yet it also must stir our hearts to a desire to share this good news with those 
we love, those we come in contact with, because the most sobering reality in the world today is that people are dying and going to hell today. There are people in Altoona right now who by the end of this day will be in hell. And Jesus died. Christ has conquered. Death and sin have been defeated and the devil has no power. And the church cannot sit silent. We must go to a world who is dying and say, come and see. In fact, that's what Jesus says next as he goes into verse 34 to 36, the invitation. This crowd, a book full of misunderstandings, all throughout the book of John, we've seen how they've misunderstood time and time again, sometimes even comically so. Here they seem to understand what Jesus is saying. Look at their objection. The people answer him. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Their understanding is starting to catch on. All right, he is saying that he must die. He's saying that he's the Messiah and he must die. But we thought that the Messiah, that the Son of Man, we thought he would come and he would reign forever. We thought he would set up his kingdom. So how can you say that if you are him that you must die? They struggle to reconcile what Jesus has said because they misunderstand what the Old Testament says about Jesus. And interestingly, Jesus does not address them directly, their misunderstandings. Instead, he offers a simple invitation to them. Come and see. We don't understand. How can this be? We thought this is what the Old Testament says, but, but this is what you are saying. How can this be? What do you mean? Come and see. Trust me. Come and see. It returns to the major theme of light and dark. Jesus is the light of the world and he invites all men who will come to walk in the light. Walk with me. Follow me. Trust me. Believe in me and become sons of light. And this is the final invitation. A call once more to come to faith. How can this be? Trust me. Follow me. Come and see. And then symbolically, Jesus hides himself from them. He departed and was hidden from them. The time is short. The hour is at hand. Won't you believe? Won't you come? And won't you see? So we come to conclusion. We see that Jesus must die so that many can live. In this passage, Jesus makes very plain what must happen. The hour is at hand. I must die so that many can live. He will die. He will rise. He will triumph. And death and sin will be defeated. And Satan will be cast down. 
The hour is at hand. Jesus must die. And this is what that means. That judgment is coming and Satan will be defeated. Won't you believe and be saved? That's the invitation that Jesus offers. Believe. Those who reject Jesus will face judgment. Those who accept Jesus and believe will find life everlasting. So the question this morning, the first question, the first point of application is believe. If you are here this morning and you have never placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation, won't you come and see? You may say, I I don't understand. We've looked at this passage of scripture and, and I hear what you're saying, but it's still confusing. I don't get it. Come and see. In just a second, we're going to close. We're going to sing a song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And even as we as a church proclaim these truths, won't you walk down that aisle and come to me and I would love nothing more than to sit down with you to open a Bible and to point you to Christ. I don't want to force you to believe. I want to answer your questions. I want to point you to Christ. Judgment is coming. Jesus offers salvation. Won't you come and see? Secondly, rejoice. For those of us who are in Christ, look at the truth of this passage. You are free. Satan has no power over you. He cannot accuse you before the Father because Christ would say, I died for him. Your sins are covered in the blood of the Lamb and Satan has no power over you. He cannot accuse you. You are free if you are in Christ. Rejoice in that. Go forth boldly in that reality. And then finally, proclaim the truth of the Word of God, the Gospel to the world. Live in the reality that you are free and go And proclaim that freedom to the world. Take the light of the gospel to the dark world. As we close this evening, morning. It's almost evening. As we close, I would call you to respond. God is working in your heart. If he is moving, won't you move? Won't you come to the front and grab me or come and and kneel at one of these chairs or kneel at your seat or go out and find a room and spend some time in prayer? Maybe you have questions. Maybe God has been working on you. Maybe you need to place your faith in Christ. Won't you come forward? Maybe you simply need to pause And just remember who you are in Christ. Maybe you just need to remember that Satan has no power over you. You are free. He has been defeated. Maybe you've been challenged with the need to take the gospel. Maybe you just need to pause and pray for boldness. Whatever it is, as we sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Won't you respond to the word of God?